a pilgrim's affections. As we look at God's Word, it gives us the guidance for everyday living. It gives us what we ought to set our affections upon. We talked about this morning, there as we've been looking at the commandments of God, and I was going through some of the consequences of being an emotionally led person, and there's more to come on that, Lord willing, next weekend. But as we think about our affections, if our affections are correct, then God's ways will not be harsh to us. God's paths for our life will not be challenging or difficult, will not be uh, harsh. I mean, not, they are challenging and difficult at times, and we don't understand it, and there's trials. But in the hardships, we know that God is by us. Now, to the book of 1 Peter, uh, Peter the Apostle, he's writing to believers who have been persecuted for the faith, and they're running, and they're probably scared, going through discouragement. And so as they've been scattered around, an opportunity to realign their focus in the right way. Okay? So 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, would you follow along with me as I read? Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that... Whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. An illustration here for you. Things are precious often because of their relationship. The most precious thing a mother has is her dear babe. We all love those who are near to us by the ties of nature. Precious, therefore, in the sight of the Lord are his saints, because they are born in his household, by regeneration made to be sons and daughters. Think not that God our Father has less affection toward his children than we have toward ours. Ah, no. No mother's heart ever yearned over her child, and no father's bosom ever rejoiced over his offspring as the heart of God yearns over his erring children. And as his soul rejoices when they come back to him, and you think about the affection of a parent towards their child. There's nothing like it. Now, we are living in some very odd and bewildering days in a culture of the weird and the weirder, the insane and the demonic. The issues facing our culture have unfortunately creeped into churches, the sad state of affairs in churches today. And rather than many churches being a light for the Lord Jesus Christ, they are a melting pot of philosophy. Now, churches that refuse to speak against sin hold themselves doubly accountable for neglecting God's word. You see, our inheritance, our retirement package is not a dwelling amongst men. But it is amongst the eternal Father whose legal promises are never to be removed. 1 Peter 1.4, if you look here, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you. Hallelujah. You can't lose it. He he refers to them as strangers and pilgrims. And there's a very definitive reason why he does that. Tonight I'm going to be discussing our attachments and where the seat of these attachments lies. As I said, with a child, there's a tremendous attachment of our heart to that child. They're our offspring. 
But if our attachments are incorrect, then verse 12 lets us know that our efficacy for the Lord, how effective I will be for the Lord, will be greatly diminished, if not removed. Colossians 3.2 lets us know, set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. Where your attachments are is where your time and talents are spent. What is important to you, you're going to put time into. And it will obviously affect your finances too, right? I mean, what you, if someone really loves hockey, they're going to put a lot of time, and then buying all the gear, it's going to take money to buy those. Ultimately, to whom you are attached will control your life. Attachment to a person means you're distancing yourself from someone else. Right? When you get married, if someone gets married, they're saying, I do to that person, and I don't to everyone else. There's a distancing. So if I'm attached to the Lord Jesus Christ, then I'm saying no to a lot of other things. The question this evening is to whom are you going to distance yourself from? Because if you have the right attachment and the right affections, you're going to end up, by virtue of your affections, you're going to distance yourself from others. And the principle tonight is be comfortable with being a beloved of Christ with an eye on eternity and a heart for obedience. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly and Gracious Father, I come before thy throne. Father, I need your help. Help me to preach your holy word. God, these are your words. This is your book. Father, how I need you. And God, you love each and every person that's here this evening. Father, I pray that whatever words are spoken, Lord, would stir their hearts to a greater love and affection for thee. And I pray that for myself. Lord, I commit all that will be said. I commit all, every, all the singing that's been done. Now the desire of my heart is that you would be glorified. And the Father, we would be changed more into thy image. I love you. Thank you for all that you've given. Thank you for being a father that doesn't leave us. Thank you for being a father that cares for us. God, your affection is for us, and I'm so thankful for that. And so, Lord, we yield tonight to thee. In Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. I want to first of all look at the attachment. And uh, I will only look at verse 11 tonight. I was intending to do both verses 11 and 12, but uh, by the sake of time and uh, what the Lord gave in my study, I only got to chapter, verse 11. So we'll look at verse 11 tonight. He makes a statement. He says, Dearly beloved. This is when that word beloved is agape toy, or uh, like, you know, I have agape love, right? There's the three types of love there in the Greek. And this is one dearly loved, beloved, prized, and valued. He says, Dearly beloved. He's writing to believers. This is Christians bound together by mutual love. In John 13, 35, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples if ye have love, that word's agape, one to another. They're kind of derivatives of one another. Different parts of speech, but derivatives there nevertheless. This word, dearly beloved, is to make a distinction from others. Romans 12, 19, dearly beloved, 
I, I, I kind of looked at it. I said, where is this word beloved and how is it used in the New Testament? Do you realize, he says in Romans 12, 19, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will replace that with the Lord. So what is the distinction? Dearly beloved, you're going to let God deal with the situation. You're going to let God deal with justice as opposed to someone who's revengeful and violent. There's a distinction. Dearly beloved. He says, distinction from my idolatrous. 1 Corinthians 10, 14. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. Saying, he says, listen, you're beloved. You're not an idolater. He's also in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, distinct in the assurance of God's promises for maturing in the, whole, in the holiness of life. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. He says, listen, Dearly beloved, you're clean and pure before God. In the areas of your life where there's room, we all have room, okay? So we're all growing. None of us have arrived. None of us are perfect. But he says, listen, let us cleanse ourselves. I don't want to wallow in the mire of the pig pen of today, of the world. There's an assurance. He says, let us go for the promises, dearly beloved. There is a distinction. You realize in 2 Corinthians 12, 19, there's a distinction for my attention. Again, think ye that we excuse ourselves unto you. We speak before God and Christ, but we do all things, dearly beloved, for your edifying. He says, listen, the Apostle Paul, to the church of Corinth, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he says, listen, we speak, of, in, we speak before God in Christ. We're speaking in Christ to you, and what we speak to you is for your edification. Hey, listen up, he's saying. Because you're the beloved. Philippians 4.1, Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved, and long for my joy and crown, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. He says, listen, you're distinct from the world's crowd. By virtue of the fact that you are a child of God, you're distinct from the world's crowd. You're not one of them. 2 Timothy 1, 2. To Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. You're distinct in your affection and your aspiration for those we disciple. It's different. You're also distinct in your connections. Philemon 1 talks about this as well. Philemon, and to Philemon, our dearly beloved and fellow laborer, uh, and then you have also Onesimus, and, and as a fellow laborer, not as a buddy. But it's distinct in our connections. There's dearly beloved saying, listen, have you ever been in a place and, and maybe God just put, you have a different spirit about you, and you're like, hey, you're a believer, aren't you? Yeah, I'm a, you know, and you begin to talk, and there's just, a, it's a wonderful thing. Because I'm distinct. I'm a child of the king. So he's saying here, the attachment is first of all, to the beloved. There is a distinct group of people. Christian, we're not to be like the world. Church ought not to be like going into a nightclub where you're having all the music and all the entertainment. Every Church ought to be unto God. It's not for the worshiper. It's a worshiper to God. Now here's the second attachment. It's to the exhortation. Dearly beloved, I beseech you. That word there is to call to be at one side. Uh, it, it's a very, to urge strongly, to appeal to. It's kind of like an individual in your life that's maybe making some wrong decisions and they're going the wrong way and you're saying, please, 
please don't go that direction. Don't go with that crowd. Don't do this, please. I mean, you are from your heart. Dearly beloved, I beseech you. And this exhortation of beseech is always an admonition to surrender and death of my desires. It says, I beseech you, Romans, look with me at Romans 12, 1. When he's using this beseech, he's making a very direct, loving, caring exhortation, desire for their hearts to say, listen, I want you to put your will aside for what I'm about ready to tell you. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. God's saying, I want all of you. And that absolutely fits with the first and greatest commandment, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, strength, and mind. The second thing we find is, and as I was looking at these different ways the word beseech was used in the New Testament, the second way, in 2 Corinthians 5.20, now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. We pray in Christ to be reconciled to God. So here's a, receives the imploring desire from a godly source. He's saying, listen, so it's, the, the word beseech is coming in the scriptures from someone who has a close relationship with God and is imparting some godly advice from scripture. 2 Corinthians 6.1, we then as workers together with them beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. What's he saying? Here's an admonition to work as God's ambassadors, not for your own glory. Let me give you an application of that. Should the time come and, you know, God allows the the church here to grow, it's never been about me. It's all been about him. If I begin to say, well, look at what I've done, then I'm doing it in vain. I'm taking what God has done and I'm doing it for my own glory and that is pride and, and God's hand will be upon me. Because it's anything good that God's doing in my life. You receive not the grace of God in vain. Additionally, he's saying, you've received God's grace. You need to be his ambassador to others. God didn't save you just to sit idly by and do nothing. God didn't save you to be, you know, a pew warmer. God saved us to be his ambassadors, what he's called us to be. Beseech you also. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, look with me here as you think about this idea of beseech. It's been pretty fascinating looking up these different words and how they're used in context. Man, it just opens up ideas about the Christian life of what God expects of me and what he expects of you as his labors in the harvest fields of this world. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. You know what he's saying? He says you need to be God's ambassador and you're already qualified. Sometimes we say, well, God, I I don't know a lot about the Bible. I don't know a lot. He says, listen, you've already got a qualified vocation. I've already put the stamp on it. I'll help you. Walk worthy. 
Philippians, Philemon 9 is an admonition from one of spiritual superiority. And then Philemon 10. I beseech, I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds. Onesimus was a slave who ran away from, who ran away and his slave master, to whom Philemon, to whom the apostle uh, Paul is writing, uh, is trying to say, listen, Philemon could put uh, Onesimus to death. I mean, he could beat him, he could do all sorts of things as the master there in the Roman law. And Paul is saying, listen, Onesimus was a tremendous help to me. Philemon, I've helped you a lot. He's a brother. He's not a slave. The Apostle Paul is writing, beseeching. He says, listen, I'm doing it for the protection of a weaker brother. So we find the first attachment is a distinction. The second attachment uh, in regards to uh, the exhortation, right? We find something else, as you find in this exhortation, to whom is he addressing here in 1 Peter? 1 Peter chapter 10, or verse 11, excuse me, chapter 11. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. That's an odd statement to make. A stranger and a pilgrim. Psalm 119, 19 says, I am a stranger in the earth, hide not thy commandments from me. This is metaphorically of a Christian whose real home is in heaven. Strong, uh, you're a stranger. You know what? You're kind of like living in a tent camp. You're only here for a short time. When you think about a pilgrim, it's a temporary resident, a sojourner, a stranger. An alien of that country. But it implies as though of us as Christians that earth is not my eternal home. We're just passing through. And that is easy to say. It's easy to talk about. But my affection so many times are on what's happening right now. What I can get, what I can do, where I can go, all these things. But it's not about what my final destination is, where my final home is. Many times we work our lives because I want to get a good retirement or whatever I want to get. We get to the end and imagine standing before God and He says, what did you do with your life for me? Well, Lord, I lived a good life. I provided, you know, for my family. Yeah, but what did you do for me? The Apostle Peter here is saying, listen, there's some believers and they're going through some hard times. Persecution, they're really struggling. He says, listen, whatever you're going through right now, it's only temporary. In 1 Peter 1.17, if you call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. 1 Peter talks much about this idea of only being on earth temporarily. 
why is it I attach myself so hard to this world? Why? Do I not understand that someday I'm going to stand before God? And I'm asking myself this as much as I'm asking you, so I'm not pointing any fingers. In Hebrews 11.13, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They said, listen, whatever I'm suffering now does not pale in comparison to what eternity holds for me as a child of God. And as you think about this, in regards to our attachment, so often we have an attachment to the fleshly. What's going to be comfortable and nice for me? What is it that is going to keep me on the path for the Lord? God never promises the Christian life is going to be easy. But the, it becomes ex, ex, increasingly, or the, it multiplies, you know, it just it continues to multiply in complexity and in difficulty if I do not abstain from fleshly lusts. And that word abstain here is used in the middle voice. It is a very, it's, it's not a command, but it is used in the present indicative, letting us know you must make the personal choice to say no to your lusts. It is to refrain from something that your body or mind wants to go to. I'd like you to look with me at Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. We are so often ready to say yes, you know, to jobs. You know, I'll get up, I'll go to work and do my job to pay bills. But when God calls us to do something, it's so often I'm just too tired. I don't feel like it. Don't we understand we have a job and a vocation with the Lord Jesus Christ? Galatians 5.16 This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that you would. What is he saying? If you're doing your lusts, you can't do what God wants you to do. There's a battle, right? You're fighting. Verse 18, but if you be led of the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the work, and it begins to go on. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such light, of the which I tell you before, as I've also told you in time past that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And this idea of lust is a craving, something forbidden, something inordinate. In a bad sense, as one 
lexicon writes, of unrestrained desire for something forbidden. But it's not only that, it's just a defiling passion wherein I need that and I don't need God. We don't understand our lives as a vocation of serving Jesus Christ. It's a job. It's, it's a, an affection. But what you are attached to, if you're attached to your lusts, someone with pornography problems, they're attached to that. And they're giving their mind and their energy and their consumption, potentially resources, for that which is forbidden. And they're not giving their mind to being controlled by the Spirit of God and maintaining purity and holiness. In Romans 13, 14, I'd like you to look with me here. There is a lackadaisical, haphazard, laid-back view many times of Christianity as something as a hobby or recreational exercise. As I said there, in the beseeching and the dearly beloved, he's saying, I want all of you. Now, all of you is in your secular career, wherever you may be. All of you, you can serve God, all of you, where he's placed you. You don't have to be in full-time ministry. Because your full-time ministry is wherever he's planted you. But in Romans 13, 14, But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not what? Provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. He's saying, listen, don't make provision. Now, if an individual has a struggle with a, a, an intoxicating substance, they're not, they shouldn't keep one bottle or one drug or one hit or whatever in their apartment or house or wherever they're staying just in case I can. I, we had a talk with someone a while ago, and, and they were struggling with marijuana, and they said, well, I, I just have it in there just in case. You're making provision. that you're going to fall. The final eruption of Mount St. Helens in May of 1980 was not a sudden event. For two months prior to the the massive blast, the most deadly and destructive in American history, earthquakes and volcanic activity signaled a major event was underway. This is written some years ago. Authorities had plenty of time to sound the alarm and warn those living nearby of the looming danger, yet despite the seriousness of the threat, some people chose to disregard the warnings. Probably the best known of those who refused to evacuate was Harry Randall Truman. The 83-year-old man was the owner and caretaker at the Mount St. Helens Lodge at Spirit Lake. He had survived the sinking of his troop ship by a German submarine off the coast of Ireland during World War I. He was not about to leave just because scientists thought there was danger. Truman told reporters, I don't have any idea whether it will blow, but I don't believe it to the point that I'm going to pack up. On May 18, 1980, Truman and his lodge were buried beneath 150 feet of mud and debris from volcanic eruption. His body was never found. It is foolish to recognize danger or temptation and think that we will somehow be exempt from the consequences if we linger. If we believe Scripture's warnings concerning temptation, we'll surely flee. The only protection we have is the approach taken by Joseph when he was tempted by Potiphar's wife, to which he ran. End quotes. I want you to look with me at 1 Peter 4, 2. As we think about this, abstaining, he says, your, 
<clears throat> you might be saying, it's so hard. I remember before I got married, there was always the desire, you know, uh, there's all these things going on in your mind and your thoughts, and you're just like, you know, I really long to be married and the benefits of marriage, the relational and others. And uh, all this is going through my mind, and you're making provision. And we would have families, we would meet, and, you know, our first kiss was on our wedding day. But as you think about it, we, there was boundaries and things, because they said, listen, we're weak in the flesh. First Peter 4, 2, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. If I'm a stranger, those things that my body wants that my mind wants, but I know are not pleasing to God, you know, as I learn to love God, and I yearn to yield my spirit to Him, and I'm dead to my desires. This all sounds easy, but it's not. If we've lived our life giving in and giving in and giving in and giving in to our desires, to say no to it, it's going to be pretty difficult at first. But if I'm not yielded to God and saying, God, whatever you want with my life, any sin in my life, you know, and you're willing to say, when I do sin, God forgive me. But if you're willing to just kind of try to do Christian life in your own power, you're going to fall flat on your face. Don't live, it says, the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men. The rest, if you live the time to your own flesh, you are not a stranger and a pilgrim. You are a resident and a citizen of this world. Because you're living for the here and now. You're living for the immediate gratification. Luke 21, 34. And take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and cares of this life. And so that day come upon you unawares. I have to be willing to say, is it, you know, a young person or whomever that wants to be married someday, and they say, I love that person, and I long to have an embrace and, and hold them and all of that. Yet, for the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ, I will withstain from all sexual activity until I say I do. Because I'm going to honor the Lord. I'm going to put Him first. I'm saying no to my flesh and yes to the Lord. That's someone who's saying, listen, I've got an eye on eternity. And one of the things we have to understand is Acts 15, 12, that they abstain from pollutions of idols. The lust always pollutes. 2 Corinthians 7, 1, a portion of that verse says, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Your lusts always pollute your mind. Always. Acts 15, 29, Let's us know we become spiritually ill by our lusts. That you abstain from meats offered to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication, which, from which if ye keep yourselves, ye shall do well. There's a health idea there. We understand also that if I give in to the flesh and the lust, it brings about death. It brings about a separation from God. It brings about not increased joy. Now there's momentary joy. Sin is pleasurable for a season. As we spoke about last week, 1 Timothy 6, 8, and having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. 
But they that will be rich fall into temptations and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. A lot of wealthy men, or men pursuing money, they get into temptations and snares. And they bring upon themselves a lot of additional hurts. The Bible tells us, flee youthful lusts. Lust, the defiling passion. First John 2, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Abstain from fleshly lusts. Pilgrims and strangers, fellow believers, beloved, understand this. It's either death to the lusts or it's death to Christ. If I give in to my passions, which is not just sexual, it could be intoxicating substance, it could be social media, I mean, it can be a whole slew of things. Anything that's defiling passion in my life. As I give in to that, I'm, if I say no to these flesh that I know I ought not to be partaking of, in the Spirit of God, you know, it's not the... There's some things that aren't bad for some people, but they're bad for others. But if I'm dead to these, and yes to Christ, or I'm no to Christ, and oh yes to all of my lusts and passions. You're dead to something. What are you going to be dead to? Icelander Eric Olafsson accidentally collided with the yacht. Dragon Song was the name of the boat, the sailboat. For the second time, just one year and one day after his first collision with the same yacht, he was sailing down the Solent when he saw the dragon song and decided to pull alongside it so he could apologize to its owner for his first collision. The problem was, he got too close to it. Jim Hughes, the owner of the dragon song, said that he will only rest sound when Olafsson has sailed off into the distance never to return. He also said that he will never ever sail anywhere near Iceland just on the off chance that he, Olafsson, will be there. And a Christian ought to have the same attitude about sin and avoiding temptation. That is pretty interesting, right? One year and one day later, he collides with the same ship he collided with before because he did, you know, <laughs> maybe they should take his boating license away. I don't know. <laughs> just a thought for you, though. And I want you to know, it says abstain from fleshly lust. It uses some very militaristic, which war against the soul. It's a conflict. I mean, when you think about the soul as the essence of life in terms of thinking, feeling, willing, your heart, your being. In the illustration of, a, of being at war, in 1896, Norman Kidd McCoy was the welterweight boxing champion. In one of his fights, he learned that his opponent was deaf. McCoy finally discovered this, and as they were nearing the end of the third round, McCoy stepped back, pointed to his opponent's corner, indicating that the bell had rung. When his opponent turned his head, he unloaded a powerful blow and knocked him out. It wasn't fair, but it was effective. Satan doesn't play fair with the temptations he delivers to you. And I began to study this idea of soul, and it was absolutely amazing if you just study how that word soul, or psyche, there in the Greek, 
is used. It is sometimes translated as life. Matthew 6, 25, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body. The word body there is soma. Matthew 10, 39, He that findeth his life shall lose it. Again, there's a death there. And he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Jesus talked about to give his life a ransom for many, his soul. Son of man has not come to destroy men's lives. It also is said in Luke 14, 26 and 27, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and, his, and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. God wants all of your being. It is a war. War isn't pretty. I mean, there are days you can be sitting there, I'll be sitting there, and man, I'm just on, I mean, I'm just reading the word, and God's encouraging me, and think, I'm just like, wow, Lord. And no sooner I get a phone call, a text, an email, you know, someone makes a statement to me, and it's just like, boom, I collide, and it's like a battle. What am I going to do with this thing that's just occurred that is now uh, unsavory? Second way that word soul is used is as soul, right? Unfortunately, many people, as you think about this idea of soul, uh, mysophobia is a fear of dirt, hydrophobia is a fear of water, forgive me if I mispronounce these, niclophobia is the fear of darkness, acrophobia is a fear of high places, taxophobia is a fear of being buried alive, xenophobia is a fear of strangers, necrophobia is a fear of the dead, claustrophobia is fear of defined places, Triskaidekaphobia is the fear of the number 13. Probably totally butchered that, forgive me. Unfortunately, many people have learned to fear things that they probably shouldn't have never learned to fear the fear of the God. Too few have acrophobia have learned to fear God and to keep his commandments. Many who have some of these fears give no heed to the words of Christ and fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is, which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Many fear what, God, what man can do to them, but they don't fear what God can do to them. When you think about the soul, there is a material versus an eternal, which holdeth our soul in life and suffereth not our feet to be moved. God holds our soul. You may potentially lose life now, but he keeps your soul for eternity. In Acts 2.27, Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Talks about in 1 Peter 1 9, the salvation of your souls. And the soul also, and you think about this, is an act of the will or your affections. It's a, and your soul also is your affections and desires. They're affected or they're convicted. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two edged sword, piercing even and dividing asunder of soul and spirit. And of the joints and marrow, as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It affects your soul, affects your affections, and your desires. It is also, in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. There's a health to your soul. 
Another way that this word soul is used is as minds in Acts 14.2. And made their minds evil affected against the brethren. It's also a conscience fixed corporally uh, when, you know, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, talking about the church of Philippi. Look with me at Hebrews 12.3. I'll be done here shortly. Talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 1 and 2, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 are my utmost favorite verses in the scriptures. And they were there. Stuff that would go through my mind many times in some very dark days of my past. But verse uh, 3, For consider him that endured such contradictions of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. That's your soul there. That would be also translated soul or life and other passages of Scripture. And the last way that that word soul is translated, that same word psyche, Greek, it's translated in English is word heart. In Ephesians 6, 6, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Whatever you do, whatever you do, do it heartily. That word heartily there is that. As to the Lord and not unto men. It's an act of your desires. Which war against the soul. Your lusts do. Your life, your mind, your heart. Your soul, it is an act of your will to either give life to your passions and your lusts or life in Christ. By putting it in Christ, there is a recognition I am only temporarily on this world. Look with me at Hebrews 10.38 in conclusion. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back into perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. We don't draw back. A pilgrim's affections, it demands that I deal with those things that are, that are my passions in life, that are not of God. They may not by virtue be bad, but the amount of attention that I give to them, it now becomes bad. And as we ponder over verse 11, I want to ask you a question. In what ways have you placed roadblocks and boundaries up in your life to stay distant from these fleshly lusts. As you think about boundaries, what are the things warring and vying for your passion and your attention? How are you protecting your soul? Are you willing to make a spiritual, kind of like a medical assessment of your soul's health? What are the wars you are fighting in your mind and your heart? 
Why do you set particular boundaries in your life? Sometimes Christianity is like, oh man, there's a whole bunch of thou shalt and thou shalt nots. Rules, for rules' sake, becomes burdensome and it becomes legalism. But rules to protect my soul, to keep me with a mindset on, I'm only a stranger and a pilgrim. You might say, Pastor, you are quite strange. But my mind is to be affected for eternity, not for the here and now. If all of if my ambitions are on what I get now and not for later, then I that's an indicator in my soul that I am not seeking to be temporary resident of this world and instead a citizen of this world. It is a privilege to be a part of the beloved. So is your life driven by the eternal? Every Christian will stand before the, the, the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for our actions, what we do with our time, our talents, and all such things. You don't lose your salvation, but you do gain or lose rewards. You do gain or lose privileges in the millennial kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ based upon how you're living right now. And how you've lived your life. Final illustration and I'm done. Roger Babson, an American historian, was visiting the president of Argentina about 100 years ago when the president said to him, You are a student of history. Will you please tell me why it is that South America, with her unlimited resources, and having been settled earlier than North America, has nevertheless made much slower progress in civilization and material prosperity? Mr. Babson threw the question back upon the president by saying, Mr. President, you evidently have studied this question yourself, and I would be interested to know your answer to it. The president of Argentina replied that he thought the explanation lay in the fact that South America was settled by Spaniards who came seeking gold while North America was settled by the Pilgrim Fathers who came seeking God, end quotes. Christian, we are the richest when my eyes are not on the present, but they're on eternity. And when I begin to see for eternity who God is and the relationship I get to have with Him and my inheritance in Him and what I've been redeemed from, I don't have to go to the lake of fire. My friend, I'll gladly say I'm a stranger and I'm a pilgrim. I'm only passing through. I want to ask you this evening in, conclu- in closing, Number one, are you a beloved? Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? For those who may be watching online, you know for sure if you died today where you're going. Second question, as a Christian, are you, could you consider yourself a pilgrim? Or would you consider yourself a resident of this world? I could have Miss Pat come forward.